All right, so today we have Starlink, but we're starting with Alan, who has got a Mazda. Yes, and Mazda's uh, constructed between the years 2014 and 2017 have a very special feature, it turns out. If you were driving a Mazda of that vintage around Seattle and you tuned into the NPR station KUOW, your infotainment system crashed and didn't entirely get bricked, but kind of did in that for whatever reasons, uh, your radio is now stuck to KUOW and you cannot change it at all. Doesn't matter if you try to restart your computer or rather restart your car or reset the system, the infotainment system, you are stuck on KUOW and you also can't use some other important features such as Bluetooth. And it appears that what happened was that uh, this station sent out a logo, uh, which is apparently a feature of car infotainment systems. I wouldn't know this. I do not own a car. I certainly do not own a new car like that. And uh, every station can send out a, uh, a, an image, either for the station as a whole or for a program that is playing. And uh, these are logos that are image files, like JPEG image files. And um, apparently the Mazda infotainment system expects these image files to be appended with an extension, a file extension. KUOW sent one out, but did not append a file extension. And so this apparently upset the infotainment system so much that it's stuck in a permanent boot loop, cannot be reset. Um, it's, it's, it's really quite a serious problem uh, to the point that uh, uh, Mazda is now talking about replacing the uh, MCU, which I can't remember what that even stands for, but- Microcontroller unit. Oh, thank you. But this is the connectivity master unit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, that's a very expensive replacement. It's gonna cost $1,500. So, you know, what, what I see missing here is the obvious conspiracy theory. This is clearly big NPR conspiring to trap people into listening to their fake news. You're right. This, that's the real story here. That's my feeling. Yes, it's the, it's the NPR cabal. Exactly. Of evil hackers, probably foreign hackers, figuring out how to do this. Exactly. It's what you get for buying a foreign car too, aren't Mazda's foreign, Japanese or something? Well, it's a manufacturer, yes, but I'm sure those vehicles are, are actually manufactured in the U.S. And um, the infotainment uh, supplier is Johnson Controls, which is very much an American company. Oh, well, they must be owned by some evil foreigners. I think we need to get Lynn Wood on this. Anyway, uh. One of my students was worried when I talked about this story, but it turns out his Mazda is too old. He's protected the same way I am against all these attacks. So I would like to point out that you can actually go onto Amazon and buy full-blown FM transmitters, like for the like regular FM radio you would listen to, the same, the same frequencies that NPR would, would broadcast on, uh, meaning that there is an amplifier inside uh, that if you were to, say, hook up, uh, your own signal from an SDR, uh, you could potentially broadcast uh, the same signal to all of your Mazda driving neighbors. Well, you know, only a truly evil person would consider such a thing. 
I, and I would never suggest such a, such a thing. That would, of course, be beneath me. I would never suggest anyone even try that. Yeah, that would be irresponsible. Yes. All right. So uh, Ron Wyden is at it again, finding out more privacy violations. And this one is pretty shocking. They got evidence that there's a second CIA program. There was a CIA program spying on Americans in accordance with the FISA Act, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. But those things had to be reviewed by a special court which is how they came to attention. But there was a second program running without any oversight that nobody ever knew about, also spying on Americans for the CIA. And uh, <clears throat> they don't really know what they did yet or what legal justification, if any, there was for this. But uh, they found out about it and they're demanding more information. So um, there will presumably be yet more uh, privacy invasion scandals, sort of like Snowden here coming out. And Caitlin has got a pay-as-you-go CPU. So what's the deal with this? Yeah, I hate it. I absolutely hate this. This is Tom's Hardware. Uh, this is an article written by Anton Shilov. Uh, so what is pay-as-you-go? Well, Intel on their new Xeon line processors has something called software-defined silicon mechanism. And this may sound like something cool, like, uh, like something like a... Um, uh, field FPGA built on your CPU. It is not that at all. It's a software mechanism running directly on the CPU that restricts access to parts of the CPU unless you pay Intel more money. That is it. <laughs> that is all the software-defined silicon uh, mechanism does. And so, for example, they talk about some of the some of the things that you can pay to have the privilege of unlocking your CPU to do. So you can pay a little extra and unlock your CPU to support large amounts of memory, up to 4.5 terabytes. Maybe you don't want to spend that much. Okay, you can spend for a license so your CPU can access two terabytes, or you can have like network uh, virtualization, um, extra thermal processing, or something. I don't know. Uh, th this is terrible. You're basically piecemealing and nickeling diming physical pieces of hardware uh, in your computer, which, yeah, no, no, thank you. So what you're saying is you hate the free market. I mean, right. Well, I mean, so the, the, the logic behind this is that people would have, I mean, the CPU market's very weird. Like yeah. the, the reason why you, you don't just go and buy the fastest Intel CPU is because of course, Silicon is hard to produce. And a lot of times you get bad batches, so they just turn off certain cores. And now instead of getting the newest, you know, 16-core uh, CPU, <clears throat> you get an eight-core CPU uh, that's priced much lower. Um, and uh, you know, people uh, don't necessarily need like every single uh, CPU, I guess, feature available when they're constructing a server. And so Intel had like something like almost 40 SKUs for their Xeon processors or something. And I guess they wanted to bring their SKUs down to like one, yeah. but in that case, just release the full CPU. This piecemeal extra pay extra to use more memory is just ridiculous. Well, it's the same way Windows XP was. I mean, they all had all the features. They just had software turned them off for like home and home premium. It makes sense. This way is more efficient. You generate all the CPUs, the same hardware, and you choose in software what level of service you want. I think it's logical. I'm not saying it's it's logical. I'm not saying it's not logical. I get their logic. Yeah. I'm saying I hate it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's clearly because you're a communist. All right. Um, anyway, so we're back to Alan, who has got a modified elephant. Yes, Sentinel, Sentinel One Labs has a report on a campaign that we're, they're calling Modified Elephant or a group, a, a threat actor called Modified Elephant that's been active in India since at least 2012. Mm. And um, this is really the first report that I'm aware of about Modified Elephant. It appears that the MO, their MO is to infect the computers and devices of people who are engaged in political activities in India and infect them using tools that are really very basic and primitive. This is not high-end APT grade malware, but it's good enough to infect the machines of these activists. And then what uh, Sentinel-1 is alleging is that they've been planting incriminating evidence on their target's devices and that this evidence is then being used in court cases to prosecute these victims for various uh, very serious crimes, such as um, an assassination attempt or, or a plot against the uh, Narendra Modi, who is the uh, president or rather prime minister of India. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this is clearly an on ongoing campaign and it's been deployed against a number of different targets um, they don't really get into many specifics about people who are targeted by this. But it's a really devious campaign, um, if the uh, facts bear out, in that um, this group has gotten away with this for so very long. And it, apparently this, this has been successful in part because the tools are so primitive and it's not at all interesting to your average malware analyst or threat intelligence company. Uh, it just looks like a regular commodity hack and uh, or the, the tools being used are commodity hacking tools. And so it hasn't attracted any attention, but the consequences are just as severe, um, certainly in terms of the uh, legal prosecutions uh, and the disruption on various networks of uh, dissidents, political dissidents. And I can see even more consequences. I mean, this is one of the frequently asked questions of every forensics class and in court. Oh, what if somebody else hacked in and put that evidence on my machine? And the answer has always been, oh, that whatever happens. I mean, in principle, that could happen, but nobody's ever done that. And I guess that's not true anymore. No, and we have evidence of it right here. Now, I, I should also mention that um, it seems that uh, these hacking campaigns very much align with the interests of Narendra Modi, the president of India, and the yeah. BJP, the, his party, um, the Bharatiya Janata Party in India. And Modi has long been uh, associated with uh, various nationalist movements in India um, and has been responsible for uh, really fomenting tensions between uh, Hindus and Muslims in India. So this does have very profound consequences for India's politics um, and uh, very anti-democratic and nationalist tendencies uh, in India now, especially. Yeah, yeah, an important finding. 
Well, I got I found a Daily Beast article I thought was pretty interesting. Oh, it's Ars Technica, in fact, where um, John Timmer is talking about the anti-evolution laws and the current anti-vaccine laws. And um, the there's an endless chain of anti-evolution laws in the South, um, forcing people to teach so-called creation science or something because they want to deny the science of evolution. And now, in the last few years, the right has really swung against vaccines, and they are not only blocking mandates for the COVID vaccine, they are also reversing mandates for all the other vaccines, like measles, mumps, and rubella that children take. So we can expect outbreaks of these solved diseases coming from the uh, red states that outlaw all vaccines. And in fact, I've been hearing increasingly from political commentators that Trump is now in big trouble because by recommending people taking the vaccine, he has alienated his base. A lot of people say Trump has become corrupt. He's in a pocket of big pharma and alternative Republicans are to be preferred now because this refusal to take vaccines is a really important issue for them. And I think it is quite fair to compare it to the refusal to admit evolution, which was a couple generations back there caused celeb. So uh, we're definitely seeing a moving back from science and logic to superstition and chaos in the red states. Yeah. Oh, go on. That's it. Uh, I thought, okay. Well, what what I find really interesting is that this whole anti-vaccine nonsense used to be very hippie liberal. Like the people that were like, oh no, the vaccines aren't natural. I'm not going to, you know, I don't really trust the vaccines. They were just the most liberal, ridiculous hippie people I've ever met. Um, in fact, the only time I've ever seen any anti-vax movement was at City College in the child development department, no less, a bunch of people questioning whether or not vaccines were really safe to give to children. I actually, the only time I ever went to a, like a department chair at City College for something was when that was being actively discussed in one of the classes. I was like, no, we <laughs> vaccines are good. <laughs> You know, among my friends, I noticed I had two people who refused to take the vaccine and they were the far left and far right. Yes. The guy on the far right believed the vaccine was full of poison and would kill you. And the far left believed in like natural medicine and stuff. And you shouldn't pollute your body with this awful technological stuff. Yeah. It's so funny that the, the two opposite sides can find, you know, agreement there, but it is very worrying because anti-vaccineism is a, Rather, I'm going to say it's not only not logical, it's extreme. And the fact that it's become sort of politically mainstream and and a bunch of lawmakers are trying to enshrine it into law, uh, this very extreme position, uh, that's a little worrisome. Oh, yeah. It's going to expose us to yet more outbreaks. For example, we've got uh, measles outbreaks all the time from societies like the Hasidic Jews that won't take the vaccine. And I guess we're going to have a whole lot of Americans that won't take vaccines spreading preventable disease and causing death in America now. I, I guess. Um, I mean, we can, we can try to educate people about vaccines, but the, the education really begins at a young age and, and goes through adulthood. If people are already adults and they don't think vaccines are a good idea, I, I don't know if there's any real hope in, in changing their mindset to become educated and, I think there's very little hope. I mean, I read studies that say this is not every Republican. This is sort of the alt-right, you know, the, the right-hand 10 or 20% of it. But those people don't watch any normal news or normal TV or take any normal sources of media at all. They think all that is evil 
and they only listen to like Alex Jones and stuff. So uh, I don't know how you'd ever reach them. And even Trump can't reach them. So I don't know who could possibly change their yeah. mind about this. Yeah. And that's, that, it's really bad for their, to, to, since it's linked to Republicans in particular, this is really bad for their, for their base because it's basically Darwinian evolution working against the Republicans. I mean, this is. Yeah. You would think at some point they would get tired of dying of preventable disease, but not yet. Yeah, no, vaccines have been one of the greatest triumphs of, of human ingenuity, you know, period. Yeah. It is, they have saved so many lives. And I'm so thankful every day that we have vaccines, period. Oh, yeah. Not just, not just the coronavirus vaccine, but uh, polio. My God, yeah. that used to be a huge thing. Uh, I, I still think there's like one or two people left in the world in iron lungs. I mean, oh, yeah. It's, it, it, it used to be terrible, but I grew up not even giving it a second thought because I had the polio vaccine. Yep. And smallpox and all that. Yeah. Yep. And smallpox. Now we have, you know, chickenpox vaccines and all this. Stuff. I mean, it's vaccines are fantastic. They've saved so many lives. And yeah, I'm going in later to get my shingles vaccine. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I've I got shingles once. It wasn't fun. I've been told that by enough friends. I figure I don't really need to try it myself. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, it's just, like itchy rash rash that's painful. Well, other people say it's the worst they've ever had. Apparently, sometimes it's really bad. No, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I get migraines, so pain. Well, whatever. Yeah, um, I used to get them. Getting yeah. older helps. I recommend that. Okay. Anyway. I'll get old. I'll yeah, try that's, that. That's, that's my best solution. Okay. Anyway, and so you've got some stories about Starlink. I do. Starlink uh, has some stuff going on. So Ars Technica has an, has an article written by John Brodkin uh, talking about how NASA is upset because uh, Starlink, so SpaceX, wants to launch not 100, not 1,000, not 10,000, but 30,000 more Starlink satellites to increase their coverage. And that's going to create some problems. Uh, so first, of, of course, is that we're just putting a ton more stuff up there. You can't ever say collisions are never going to happen. Every time you put up a satellite, there's always a small chance it's going to collide with something else. And when you put up two or three or 30,000 more, you know, you just increase those odds, right? It's also going to interfere with other satellites that have very important jobs. I mean, the internet's important. I agree. I mean, we should really endeavor to make sure everyone has, has internet. However, there's other uh, orbiting satellites that do really important work like Hubble, which will be impacted by all these satellites whizzing by, uh, which could also get hit by you know, one of the satellites going by, which could interfere with the optics, um, et cetera. And Back on Earth, of course, we're already seeing astronomers pissed off at Starlink because they put up their telescopes, they take a picture, and they have all these little trails of Starlink satellites going through their image. Um, it's only going to get much, much worse. Uh, and this can really affect wide field telescopes. So if you have a very narrow angle telescope, it's very unlikely, even with 30,000 Starlink satellites, that one's going to streak across any given photograph. But uh, if you're doing wide you know, a, a wide angle type of telescope, like you're searching for, I don't know, planet killing meteorites that are, or meteors that are gonna come and strike us. 
or planet killing asteroids, I say. So asteroids are when they're in space, meteors are when they're in the atmosphere, and then meteorites is when they hit the ground. Okay, so now, now we all know the difference. Uh, so when they're looking for asteroids, you know, they use these sort of wide angle telescopes looking at a large swath of space, and it's, it's gonna get streaked with the Starlink satellites, making it more difficult to detect and prevent our inevitable doom, which I personally disagree with. So yeah, NASA's warning that maybe this, we, we, should, uh, we should talk about this a little bit more before we throw up Gen 2 of Starlink. And not and only yet, that, I think um, uh, Bezos has a competing plan to put up his 10,000 satellites. Right, right. And I mean, space is big, uh, but you have to keep in mind that in low Earth orbit, uh, it, it's pretty crowded. Um, just everything is there. Um, and, you know, stuff does come down, which brings us to our next article. The Verge has an article by Son Hollister, who we've had before on our podcast, or we featured before. And it's it, it talks about how on February 3rd, uh, SpaceX launched 48 or 49 new Starlink satellites. So the way it goes up is that they are all loaded up into a, like a single launch vehicle and then they throw up in space and then they're sort of all released at once. So 49 went up in this one launch and 40 of them are crashing back to earth because of a geomagnetic storm. So what happened? Well, a geomagnetic storm from the sun uh, caused the atmosphere to warm up a bit. That warmed up atmosphere caused the atmosphere itself to expand a bit. And because the Starlink uh, satellites were still trying to get into their configured orbit. They were still relatively low in orbit. And the increased drag due to the geomagnetic storm caused 40 of the new Starlink satellites to come crashing back down. So, so they don't actually rocket them all the way to the full height. They just go partway up and then fly up gradually. Yeah. Um, all, all spacecrafts uh, have monopropellants. Uh, to, you know, get them into their, you know, and into the orbit they're supposed to go into. Yeah. So. so it spends a temporary period of time at a very low orbit before it makes it up to its low orbit. Yeah, I assume so. Especially because you, you want those, you don't want to send the, or at least nowadays, you don't want to send the, the, the large payload, the big rocket into orbit itself with the satellite, you want those to come back down, but you want the satellites to, you know, put themselves up into the orbit that they're eventually gonna be in. Um, otherwise you're just throwing up a bunch of extra space junk. Oh, okay, I see, well, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. all right. And Alan's got private equity. Private equity and housing, it's a bleak situation. Uh, ProPublica has a, a very long story uh, about some apartment buildings in San Francisco. Um, one in particular on mission, I think it's mission and ninth or mission and 10th, right around the corner from Twitter HQ. And um, this, this was an eye-opening story for me because uh, I didn't know about the extent of private equity and private equity's involvement in uh, multifamily or apartment buildings in the US. Um, and in particular, the relationship between private equity firms and Freddie Mac, and just to provide a little bit of context here, <clears throat> private equity firms are um, usually temporary investment uh, organizations or companies, if you will, that exist for about 10 years. And their whole purpose for being is to find some kind of asset, buy it, grow it, and then cash it out. 
So that might be anything from buying a, a distressed company that's been underperforming and doing a kind of a, a makeover, trying to improve its management, trying to improve its profitability. And then as soon as it reaches that state, sell it on to another party or take it public and do an IPO. Um, or in the case of these apartment buildings, what's going on is they are taking otherwise profitable buildings that have been performing well, new buildings, as in this story, and they're simply cutting costs and raising rents simultaneously. So that on paper, the buildings suddenly are much more profitable. And that's exactly what happened in, in this story is that um, Graystar, a, a LLC that is mostly private equity back and that has raised its own private equity rounds, uh, has bought a, a portfolio of buildings through another company that it was that was previously publicly traded took that private and according to this story they have been raising rents dramatically and then also eliminating a lot of services such as security guards on site and trash collection so what they've managed to do is indeed enhance the profitability of their operations uh, in this case, about 25% and all that within just a couple of years. Um, now, one might say, well, that's just a couple of high-end apartment buildings in San Francisco, but that's really not the case at all. Um, it, it, there's a major trend hap happening nationwide in which private equity is backing a huge number of acquisitions. And historically, a lot of apartment buildings have been essentially local mom and pop operations. Uh, they may have been fairly sizable, but they weren't national. However, a lot of these private equity firms are, are now holding a lot more of a part of the apartment stock nationwide. And it's estimated that the top 35 private equity-backed firms in the US hold at least 1 million units in America, 1 million. And that's probably a serious undercount because um, there are uh, a number of rather opaque structures that allow uh, private equity investors to conceal the true ownership of properties. Anyway, that would all be attributable to the powers of the free market, et cetera, et cetera, except for the fact that private equity is really counting on Freddie Mac to get uh, to provide liquidity, liquidity to its market. And Freddie Mar Mac, um, like Fannie Mae, is one of these really weird publicly traded companies that is also government sponsored at the same time. Uh, it's a kind of a controversial structure because on the one hand, um, they're supposed to be acting in the public good as a government-sponsored organization, enterprise. But on the other hand, they also have a private uh, uh, profit motive. And so what Freddie Mac does is that they provide liquidity to the market, to the housing market and to the apartment market, real estate market, by buying up um, mortgages or repackaging mortgages for the secondary market that can then be that can then be uh, bought and sold, um, much like uh, equities are, stocks are. And so, in principle, 
it helps provide more cash to the market. It allows uh, for more people to buy properties and uh, for uh, loan issuers like banks to continue giving out loans. But in practice, what seems to be happening is that these private equity firms have figured out that they can essentially game the system and they can buy more and more properties and they can do so thanks to uh, record amounts of inflow of cash into the, uh, private equity in general. But then they can also count on the liquidity provided by Freddie Mac to essentially make it easier for them to sell on these repackaged mortgage-backed securities. So not directly, but indirectly, Freddie Mac is helping support all these uh, private equity firms that are engaging in practices that are ultimately very bad for the average renter, not just in San Francisco, but throughout the country. These private equity firms, like I said, are not interested in really providing uh, great housing or affordable housing for people. They're interested in turning a short-term profit because they only exist for about 10 years or less. So they need to get in and get out quickly. And uh, um, what uh, some people are speculating as quoted in this ProPublica article is that um, these private equity firms, although they do not necessarily control the majority of units in their markets like San Francisco, these markets are still very constrained because there are fewer units than there are potential rent renters. And so they are able to move the markets and ultimately make them much more expensive, units much more expensive than they otherwise would be. So that's the depressing housing market story from ProPublica. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, argument about housing in San Francisco and movements to like tax people for vacant buildings and stuff to try to do something about it. Anyway, they uh, are. Yeah, and uh, the the pandemic has offered a little bit of relief because so many people moved out because they were allowed to work from home. But uh, I should expect that in another year at least. Um, rents will be going straight back up again. They, they already are going back up, but we'll probably get back to the high rents of before. Oh, yes. San Francisco remains attractive. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Even though it's not, uh, not so attractive out on the streets of San Francisco. Nope, say. it's not. Not downtown. I never not go downtown. downtown. No. Yeah. Well, these, these scientists have built fish with human heart tissue, which is a proof of concept. They've taken lab-grown human heart cells and connected them so that one side contracts and then the other side contracts, and this makes the fish swim. And if you stick them in a nutrient broth, they will live for three months swimming away. And of course, the point is, this is getting closer and closer to building artificial human hearts for heart patients. And so uh, I think that's pretty exciting. It's, of course, the early days, but... Um, they should be able to grow an artificial human heart and replace the hearts of people with, with heart problems. So I hope that moves ahead. And Caitlin's got NFTs. Everything needs more NFTs. Yes, uh, I'm glad you you agree with uh, Ubisoft. So the gamer, <laughs> gamer.com has an article written by Vastan Destor talking about how, you know how some companies give bonuses 
or they might have pizza parties for their employees, something to boost morale like that. Well, Ubisoft, who has previously been known for their video game development, as well as their sexual harassment and their physical harassment and their mental harassment, um, have decided to give their employees NFTs as bonuses. <laughs> and the employees, for some reason, are not grateful, and I don't understand why. So essentially, Ubisoft wants to get into the NFT market, and they have all these plans. Supposedly, they're going to open up the Ubisoft Quartz platform, which will apparently be full of NFTs and have absolutely no sexual harassment or physical abuse or mental abuse going on. And, um, and it was supposed to like, you know, it's going to be their marketplace for NFTs and already things are beginning to go wrong because they were going to say it was, they were trying to get it to use T, uh, Tezos's energy efficient uh, blockchain, which would have reduced the amount of energy stuff, but um, Frontier, which is a partner company to Ubisoft, just sold them an, on OpenSea. So that's just Ethereum. So right. that just went, that just went away. <laughs> well, Ethereum is going to be more energy friendly later this year. I hope so. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so people are just upset that they're not getting NFTs instead well, these, of... These people swine don't appreciate the glorious NFTs. They, 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 they don't appreciate working for a company that's well known for its sexual harassment and its physical and mental abuse. Um, and they don't appreciate the NFTs that they get in uh, for their hard work and putting up with a company that... So they actually have to stop abusing them in addition to giving them NFTs. Yes, yes. I mean, they have so many demands, like pay us real money, not NFTs. Oh. You know, stop abusing us. Uh, stop oh. mistreating us. I mean, it's so, it's just, so employees so, are so whiny. So this is you being a communist again. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. All right. And uh, the last one I thought was pretty amazing. So Eli Lilly has made an anti-cancer drug. But the FDA has refused to approve it because all the evidence, the medical trial evidence came from China. And I was unaware of this. 80% of all medical results from China are faked. And this has been proven. And this reminds me of when I was in grad school, there was a grad student getting a PhD in physics from Russia. And he told me he already had a PhD in Russia, but for some reason, the Americans refused to accept it. And I was told that this was standard practice because in Russia, most physics PhDs are just plagiarism. They just take an American PhD thesis and translate it into Russian and call it their own work. So I was unaware of this, but apparently Chinese medical science is thoroughly corrupt and everybody knows it. And if you don't have trials performed outside China, nobody believes in your drug. So that was interesting. Anyway, I think that's it for today. And it being Friday, we'll be back on Tuesday. And I'm hunting for the button. The button. <laughs>